The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And the rest of us are going to turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you'll meet me there. And uh, it was about probably 15 years ago when I was first introduced to the reality that in the scriptures you have both a tender Jesus and a tough Jesus. I was reading through a little short biography on John Newton. And the, the author was explaining that we need the whole counsel of God's word. We need all four gospels. We need to read all the gospels and take all of the gospels in because you have there a well-rounded, accurate representation, presentation of who Jesus is. You need to see Jesus as both tough and tender in order to have a healthy spiritual life, relationship with the Lord. You need to see him in all of his glory. And that includes his toughness. And that also includes his tenderness. And the reason why that's so important for all of us is because depending on our personality, we may tend towards one view of Jesus than the other. Either we will be those who tend towards seeing just his tenderness or depending on our personality, we may be those who just see his toughness and take after that. Well, today we have in a passage where we see Jesus' tenderness exemplified. As we go through Luke, we'll see both. We'll see tenderness. We'll see toughness. But today is a passage that truly shows us the tenderness of Jesus towards his disciples. And I hope to bring that out of the passage. So I've broken it down. You might see on your outlines we have several points. They're really not points as much as they're just markers in the text to help you follow along. And we start off with a simple request. We start off with a simple request. Luke just begins it by kind of a generic statement on one occasion. We're not told exactly when this is. It just happened at one point. And it happened while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. And we know the location. They're at the, uh, says, the Lake of Gennesaret. And that, this is the Sea of Galilee. It has several different names, as it turns out. This could be the, could also be referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. But this is the Sea of Galilee. It's northeast of Nazareth, about eight miles by 14 miles in size, and a very popular place for fishing. So we're right next to the the uh, Lake Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, as it was also called. And Jesus has, the crowd is pressing in on him, and this is not an unusual thing. This crowd that wants to hear Jesus teach at this present moment, also the crowd who wanted to see some miracles or receive the benefit of miracles, here they are pressing in on him in order to hear the word of God. And we have to see this crowd Luke's going to mention the crowd often, and the crowd is the group from which true disciples would emerge, but the crowd itself was, generically speaking, it was a group that was interested in Jesus, but otherwise unbelieving, ultimately unbelieving. This is just the big group that's following after Jesus to hear him teach, to receive benefit from his miracles, and so on, and he's being pressed in upon him. He's being constrained to the point where he's going to need to take some sort of deliberate action in order to actually teach them. And then that's what we have here. It says, he saw two boats by the lake, 
But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now this word for nets, this is a specific word. And uh, I don't know how many fishermen we have out here, and I don't know how many fishermen we have fishing with nets these days. But these were special kinds of nets. The word is very specific here. This would have been called a trammel net, and this would have been a multi-layered net. And it had also been rigged with weights and floats, and so it had been a very complex set of nets that required regular washing. And that's what they're doing here. They're taking care of these are big, heavy nets. It's not only a lot of work to cast them out into the water, but it's a lot of work to bring them back in, and it's a lot of work to wash them. And that's where Jesus finds himself, these fishermen, and they're out of their boats, and they're washing their nets. But that doesn't stop Jesus. He gets into one of the boats, which was Simon's. That's going to be an important part. And let me just say at the beginning here, if I continue to refer to him as Peter, just forgive me, because we all know him as Peter, and he's referred to as Simon here. So this is Simon Peter. But if I go in and out, that you know who I'm referring to. But it's designated, this is Simon's boat. He's a professional fisherman. This is an important part of his work. This is one of his main tools, these trammel nets, this boat. And he asked Simon a specific thing. He says, put out a little from the land. And why did he do that? Well, if you guys have spent any time on lakes, you know that when lakes are calm, that sound can travel pretty decently across calm water. And it's also interesting that Israeli scientists have found um, locations along the uh, Sea of Galilee that have this kind of natural amphitheater so that if you were to set out on a boat just a little ways from shore, that your voice would be amplified just naturally by the way the, the shore itself is structured. Quote, uh, these, this natural amphitheater could, quote, transmit a human voice effort, effortlessly to several thousand people on shore. So this is likely what is going on here. Jesus, ever wise, determines that this is going to be the best way to communicate with this people and to not only that, but then not be pressed in by them. He has a work to do. We know that in the previous passage that this is one of the main reasons for the incarnation, to come and preach. Jesus came to preach. He came to seek and save the lost, and that's what he's doing here. He's going to teach, and he's going to preach, and he has the, the perfect locale to do that. He's going to take advantage of this, what is probably a natural amphitheater, so that people can hear him. But interestingly, the focus is not on the teaching, is it? The focus is not on what Jesus teaches from this boat. That's not what is focused upon here. In fact, we're not even told what he teaches as much as we would like to know. What is really the issue here? The issue is Jesus dealing with his future disciples, the disciples he's going to call to himself. And that is the main point, the main focus of this passage and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets out for a catch. So we have in verse 4 an unusual command, an unusual command. And it is slightly unusual, is it not? The men who Jesus has encountered, these would have been professional fishermen. They know what they're doing. This is their area of expertise. This is where they make their living. They know what they're talking about. They know how to use the equipment. And not only that, but as we see here, Peter responds, Simon responds and says, we toiled all night and took nothing. In other words, this is a little strange that you, O oh rabbi, as smart as you are, 
It's odd that you would question our fishing capability. Do you not know that we just spent all night traversing this area in search for fish? We know what we're doing. We know how to use the nets. We know how to work with the equipment. And Jesus has made this just strange and usual command for them to put out their nets for a catch. And just, just we have to think of this for a moment. Just put yourself in the place of Peter, okay? If someone bursts into, onto the scene in your area of expertise and starts telling you how to do your job, especially when that person has no known experience in that area, listen, you're a carpenter, not to, not to point any fingers here, but you're a carpenter, not a fisherman, this is our area, you know how the frustration that might start to emerge due to that, what appears to be some sort of presumption even. Now, I grew up in auto repair, and I, my dad has owned and operated an auto repair business for 60 years now, if you can believe that. It's pretty amazing. And I know what it'd be like, because I spent a lot of time at the shop, working at the shop, uh, running around under the cars as they're up on the hoist, all kinds of stuff. Worked all the way there from seventh grade up through high school. So I, I saw what went on in these shops, and I know exactly how my dad would have responded had he worked all night on a car, and some medical doctor or retail manager comes in who has no experience in auto repair, tells my dad dad to hook up the battery, try it again, it'll work this time. My dad, rightly so, would probably laugh and shrug off that advice with a smart remark, which would have been very clever knowing my dad, and I would have probably enjoyed it very much. So you know that this situation is just it's, it's an odd request. It's an odd instruction. These men know what they're doing. They've searched all night. And not only that, but this is a very demanding request. Again, just to back up to what we said about these nets. These are very big, heavy, complex nets with all kinds of stuff on them, and you've got to maneuver them. And this would have taken multiple people to get them in, out of the boat and then back into the boat. So this is not an easy thing, especially when they have spent all night, as uh, Peter reminds Jesus, they had spent all night and taken nothing. If their search wasn't exhaustive, it was at least comprehensive, and they don't have anything to show for it. And so Jesus, you may mean well, but this is a little, I don't know, out of your wheelhouse, out of your wheelhouse, to use a common expression. Jesus' command appears implausible, a little arrogant, and demanding. Appears that way. That's the operative word, appears. Well, Simon gives a reasonable response. That's verse 5. Notice his response. Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. So I want us to see that this is actually, in, in terms of our perception, this is a reasonable response because he's, Peter doubts the command from Jesus because of his past, recent, intimate experience in the same area in which Jesus is making the command. He knows the water. He knows the profession. He knows how the nets work. He knows how these things work. And so his response to Jesus is, from an earthly perspective, rather reasonable. Isn't this how we make wise decisions? Don't we look at how things have gone in the past and determine whether or not we're going to repeat that same process again for future success and determine whether we're going to use another course of action? 
Peter's initial response here is rather reasonable, right? The word labor here refers to really tough, wearisome work. We have toiled all night and taken nothing. Jesus' command then sounds foolish, perhaps cruel, based on Peter's recent experience. So Peter's skepticism is well-grounded, or again, seems well-grounded. If another fisherman had come along and suggested that Peter drop another fisherman, right? Much less someone who is a carpenter. If another fisherman had come along and say, cast your nets into the water again, he would have rightly brushed off such, such a suggestion. To try to catch fish in this area is simply a waste of time. Peter's approach is reasonable by our standards. Is it not? It's reasonable. And this is how we make wise decisions. However, I want us to see and this is why I don't classify Peter's uh, response here as unbelief. I think we should call it doubt or hesitation. Because what does he do? What does Peter do? Do you have an affection for Peter? I just, I find so much of myself in Peter. I hope you do too. Um, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So, so okay, this sounds strange and unusual, a little presumptuous. But he does it. Peter obeys. He obeys the Lord. He does what he's been instructed to do despite his hesitation. He was initially hesitant. So I don't, I don't classify this as unbelief. I classify, the, classify this as, as, as hesitant obedience. It, 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 it culminates in, in obedience. And so we can be thankful for that. In fact, Peter's response here reflects what Luke will show throughout his gospel as a proper response to Christ. We see this multiple times throughout the gospel. You see this, is this response, this response of obedience uh, of, of the person to God's messenger, and here's the case with Peter. He is responding, though, a little hesitantly, not knowing everything, and so we can be grateful for that. Let us not cast dispersion upon uh, Peter because of his hesitation. All right, so what do we have then in the, right after that? We have a glorious catch. Verse 6, And when they had done this, they closed a, uh, enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. So despite Peter's hesitation, and this is vital, we have to see this, despite Peter's hesitation to put down into the water, to put his nets down into the water, the yield is overwhelming. That's the picture. This wasn't just a good catch. This wasn't just a good day on the water. I mean, some of us in here, if you're a fisherman, you, you like a couple of fish, you're like, this is a good day. Like, you, you catch a boatload of fish, and it's not a good day. It's a good career. This is an overabundant, overwhelming catch, not knowing exactly the size of the boat, but just judging from what the size of the boat could have been or would have been at this time, this is probably more over a ton of fish. Some have even said multiple tons. This is, this is unbelievable, and that's going to be important to keep in mind as we see what the disciples do later in this story. But this is a glorious catch. This is a career day financial provision for a long time, it's a glorious catch. You know, Jesus could have wrapped things up as soon as Peter hesitated, couldn't he? 
Peter could, Jesus could have chided him. Jesus could have removed the blessing because of Peter's hesitation. Does he do that? No, he doesn't. And we'll see why that's significant in a moment. But now we come to a heart-piercing realization. This is verses 9, 8, and 9. A heart-piercing realization. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fall down. he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why such a response? Why does Peter respond this way? Why does he focus on his sin? Well, he knows that he has doubted the Lord. He knows that he has doubted this righteous and wise Lord. But not only that. He's not merely convicted of the holiness and righteousness of, of Christ at this moment. He is also convicted together with that, with the mercy of Christ, is he not? Jesus could have removed the blessing at the hesitation and have every right. You don't believe me? You don't believe in my power? You don't believe enough to respond immediately? Well, then no blessing. But rather, Jesus pours out the blessing despite the hesitation. Peter's heart is pierced, it's broken, because he sees before him both a righteous Christ, a holy Christ, and a merciful Christ who blesses him despite the hesitation, despite the doubt. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And here is an example. Here we have repentance. We have the acknowledgement of sin, the smiting of the heart, so deeply that he wants the Lord to leave his presence. And this is one of the themes that Luke gives us throughout his gospel. We see this with the prostitute in Luke chapter 7. Jesus responds positively to her because she is recognizing her sin and sees in Christ a Savior. We see this with the prodigal son when he comes back to his father. I have sinned against you and against heaven. There's the pouring out of confession. We see this with the publican who beats his chest because he can't begin to look to heaven. He says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. We see this with Zacchaeus. Jesus is about to respond to Peter because Peter has responded to him with broken-hearted contrition, a contrition that is brought about because of the beautiful person that Jesus is. He is both righteous and holy, unswervingly perfect in all that he does, and he is merciful, kind, and compassionate. And if you don't have both, you don't have Jesus. It doesn't matter what your personality is. Just a note here, because I found this in in some of the study that I was doing. A few commentators don't find this use of Lord to be um, Peter here ascribing deity to Jesus. And I just scratched my head when I'd read that, because 30 out of the 33 times that Lord is used up until this point in Luke's gospel, it refers to the Yahweh of the Old Testament. So I just leave that with you. I leave that data with you for you to do your own analysis. But I think here what you have is, like you have throughout the Gospels, you have disciples who are recognizing this is the Lord, and yet at sometimes they're confused about his identity. Who is this who controls the winds and the waves and the seas? And, right? 
So let us be careful about the conclusions that we, we draw here. I think we see, he, see someone who is responding in a way that you, this is the way you respond in the presence of the divine. This is the pattern throughout scripture. And here Peter is making that kind of statement. Well, that was just a side note. That's a little bonus. I had to get that off my chest because, so. Well, we have an encouraging lesson. The, the, the grace and the patience and the kindness of the Lord Jesus just continues. It's just, it just pervades this entire text. Let's continue to make our way through it. Verse 10, oh, I'm sorry, verse, verse 9, it says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, so again, that's, that's why I say that this is more than just him recognizing that he had doubted the righteous Lord. This is being astonished at God's grace and Christ's grace in, to him at that moment. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And here's the encouraging lesson. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, again, Jesus re- responds to initial doubt with blessing. He is now going to respond to this contrition, this beating of his chest because in this this wanting Jesus to depart from him because he senses his sin, Peter senses his sin. And Jesus responds not with yeah, that's right. You are a sinner. He responds with what? Fear not. This is how Jesus responds to people who are contrite over their sin. When you go to Jesus with self-confidence in your righteousness, he won't answer you. But if you go to him with contrition over your sin, he will embrace you in his arms. This again, this is the pattern throughout the scriptures. God opens his arms to those who know their sin and their need for mercy. Jesus says, fear not. Peter's having a difficult time remaining in the presence of Jesus. This is, his heart is just smiting him. And yet Jesus says, fear not. Are you sinful today? Are you unworthy today? Are you inadequate for the, the task that God has put before you? Yes, you are. Fear not. Fear not. That's what Jesus says to you. Fear not. But the large catch of fish wasn't the main feature of the story. Jesus uses this miracle of provision to create a picture of what he's going to do with Peter and his ministry and the other disciples in their ministry. This is a picture. He provides a large catch of fish. He is also going to provide a large catch of men. So that is true. That's all true. But this episode is also meant to tell them very clearly who would be providing the success for their ministry. In the same way that Jesus provided the amazing catch of fish, so Jesus would richly bless the disciples' ministry. Luke, the one who writes this, will also write the book of Acts. And out there, out in Acts, he will outline the glory success that Christ provided his disciples as they sought to catch men with the preaching of the gospel. They preached, they prayed, they devoted themselves to fellowship and worship, and Christ blessed their efforts. So fear not. Well, he says to them, he said, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. You have a, a new profession now. You're going to be catching men. The word there actually means catching alive. 
there's a play on word play on words here. You're going to be catching people. You're catching fish. It's entirely legitimate. It's a legitimate profession. But I want you now to take part in the catching of people. And so, what's the response to this? And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, again, just to back up so we get the full impact of this. Remember what I said about their catch. This is a career catch. This is a career day. This means pretty significant financial provision for a while. And not only that, but boats and nets, especially these nets, they're not cheap. And so they must see something in this Jesus and something in this calling that makes them so entranced with his glory and his goodness and the, the thrill of, of doing something like catching men, whatever that means, that they're willing to leave everything and follow him. And this is a right response. Now, by worldly standards, this is a foolish response. First, go up and t- just go sell the fish first and sell your boats, sell your nets, have some provisions for along the way. They leave everything and they follow after Jesus, not concerned about whether or not things will be stolen. They have experienced the supernatural power and grace from this rabbi from Nazareth. He is both gracious and powerful, merciful and holy. He comforts and calms the heart of the sinful, doubting disciple. They're going to leave everything and follow after him. And you know what? Levi's going to do the same thing. Matthew's going to do the same thing over in verse 28 verse 27 of the same chapter. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Who is this, who is this Jesus who's commending loyalty by just saying, follow me? Who is this Jesus? Well, this is the supernatural, glorious Christ who is both righteous and tender to his disciples. However, these stories about the disciples leaving everything and following after Jesus, these aren't just narrative tidbits. Luke does emphasize the call of discipleship in his book, in his gospel. All throughout, he explains what it really means to follow Jesus. He weaves this theme all throughout his gospel. When you see Jesus for who he really is, you leave everything and you follow after him. That's going to be Luke's driving point throughout his gospel. He'll continue back to it. And this isn't second level Christianity. This is Christianity. To see in Christ someone who is worth leaving everything for. That's Christianity. And this falling after Christ isn't unfounded or unwarranted or foolish, though the world will say to you that it is, and it will find every way to entice you to believe that what you are doing with your life and following Christ is utter folly. Which is exactly why every Sunday, every Sunday, and multiple times during the week, we need to be brought back to the Scriptures so that we can see the value and the worth of following Jesus. Because the world will tell you in every commercial during the Super Bowl that your following of Christ if not overtly foolish, is at least not getting you what you could get now. Jesus, the, the, the disciples see 
they, the disciples see in Jesus a self-authenticating glory. They see someone who's true and real and valuable, so they leave everything to follow him. When Jesus tells his listeners, just to, to fill out now what Luke does in his gospel in terms of discipleship and his this explaining of what it means to follow after Jesus and then showing us that these aren't just narrative tidbits about the disciples. In, in Luke 14, 27, when Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, he's not making an unreasonable demand. It's not an unreasonable demand. When you see Jesus for who he is, you pick up your cross and you follow after him. Not in your own willpower, but 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 depending upon this Jesus who says, I'll give you everything that you need for life and ministry. When you see Jesus for who he is, you follow after him. When Jesus says in Luke 14, 33, that any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, he is not asking too much. He is telling you to trade in temporary, temporary paltry pleasures for infinite, eternal wealth and joy. Is it unreasonable? Let me ask you, is it unreasonable for a father to say to his son, give me that $5 in pennies that's in your piggy bank so that I can give you $100? Is that unreasonable? Is that unreasonable? It's not unreasonable at all. Jesus, when he says to us to renounce everything or we cannot be his disciple, that's not asking too much. He is loosening our grip on that which we will never find ultimate satisfaction in. But we must be able to see the worth of Jesus, and that's why this passage is given to us today. That's why every passage in the Gospels is given to us. That's why the the New Testament is given to us, so that we would continually be brought back to seeing Jesus for who who he is. He is the tender and merciful Savior to his disciples. Put down your nets. There's the command, and Jesus will provide the fish. We do not find in Jesus an unreasonable dictator. And if you are still seeing in Jesus an unreasonable dictator, then you're not seeing Jesus aright. He is a benevolent king. He's king, make no mistake. He is worthy of all obedience, but he is gracious and kind and merciful. What I do want to note here as we look at uh, this story of the disciples, having said all that about discipleship, it's important to note that most people, when they come to Christ, won't leave their professions to become full-time, to do full-time work in vocational ministry, like the disciples. See, the disciples would become the apostles, and they would have a unique place in the life of the church. And so we do need to see this story in its place in redemptive history. We need to see the disciples, the apostles, in their place in redemptive history. And be careful that we're not walking away from this story with a kind of underlying guilt that Jesus doesn't really like what I'm doing if I don't leave my profession and become a full-time pastor or missionary. We're being told what the disciples do, what they do is right, what they do in light of Christ's direct calling on their lives is right. It corresponds to the call of discipleship throughout the New Testament. Yes, we are called to leave everything and follow after Jesus, but for many of us, that calling will 
most likely happen within the professions that we are already have. It may not. Due to your conversion to Christ and your loyalty to him, you may choose to leave your profession. There are some who are called to full-time vocational ministry, but that's not most of us. And so here we just need to recognize that this is a unique calling upon these, these men. However, when a person does come to Christ for salvation, they may leave their profession, they may not, but whatever they do, they are now doing everything for the glory of God with faith in Christ, and they have yielded to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And if you are a Christian today, you are a fisher of men in some capacity. You don't have to be a preacher or a pastor. You don't have to be an overseas missionary. You just have to know Jesus, who's called you to catch men, and you find them all over the place. Well, what are some, some lessons we can take away from this passage? I have three, three basic ones here, three lessons, and they all have to do with Jesus, okay? Um, well, how do we apply this? Well, I think we apply it by seeing Jesus for who he is. Number one, Jesus' commands are always wise and best for us, even if they appear to our reason or experience to be foolish. Let me say that again. Jesus' commands are always wise and best for us, even if they appear to our reason or experience to be foolish. That's exactly what happened with Simon. His reason, his experience, his expertise all told him that this command from the Lord Jesus was foolish, unreasonable. Fortunately, faith brought in that which was true, and he trusted the words of Jesus and acted on that. But we have to make sure that we are not relying upon our reason, experience, or expertise to determine whether or not Jesus' commands are for our benefit or will, will turn out well for us. They always will, because he is always wise. And we need God's spirit and God's grace to see the commands and the instructions and the words of Jesus as that which always carries the most wisdom, the most benefit. And those benefits may not be seen all here on this earth. In fact, we know that they won't. Many of the benefits that come along with Christ's words will be seen in the new heavens and the, the new earth when we dwell with God forever in all righteousness. But even here on this earth, we can get a taste of the wisdom of Christ and we can see how it is good for us to obey him and how we need the Spirit constantly to teach us and to train our minds to trust in these words even when reason, experience, and expertise is telling us Ah, it just doesn't seem like it's going to work, Jesus, to, to really wait till we're married. Does that, ah, just, that doesn't, I, but we're in love. I, if I just fudge a little bit on my tax returns, I'll get a little bit money back, and then I can give more to the church. Jesus' commands are always wise and always best for us. He promises it. And we have many godly saints who will come alongside us when we're wavering and say, you can trust him. You can trust him. All right, that's the first command that comes right out of the text, I think, as we see Peter hesitating and yet blessed with immeasurable blessing. 
when he finally obeys. All right, number two. Jesus is the one who provides our success in gospel ministry. Remember, this incident wasn't merely showing or merely drawing a picture. Hey, hey, that's good. You're catching fish. You're also going to catch men. Oh, I like that one. It wasn't just merely a, a picture of that, though a good one. Jesus, the master teacher, constantly using illustrations from all over the, all over the place to teach them something. But it was to highlight that Jesus is the one who provides the catch. <coughs> Excuse me. In the same way that Jesus provided the fish, he would provide the people. And we see the immediate fulfillment of this promise in Acts 2:37 through 41. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus commissions, Jesus commands, and Jesus provides. We just have to keep that in mind. I mean, it really is Jesus who is doing the work here at CBC. We're letting down our nets, but it is Jesus who is providing the people. Jesus provides success in gospel ministry. We must rely upon him. We must lean upon him and his spirit and his kindness and goodness. Finally, and this is the, the main point here, Jesus is kind and merciful to his disciples. The one thing that we cannot miss in this episode about Jesus is that gentleness and patience and grace pervade the entire situation. Jesus initiates what's going on here. He instructs Peter to let down the nets. Peter hesitates in doubt, but when he finally obeys, Jesus provides the blessing of a massive catch of fish. When Peter responds in repentance and contrition, Jesus responds with encouragement and a commission. And I want us to turn to Matthew here because I'm not sure all of us have seen this before in Matthew. Thank you very much, brother. A cup of cold water, Jesus will not take your reward away. <laughs> Amen. All right. So uh, let's turn over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Because <clears throat> I want us to see that when G, uh, Peter responds with, with doubt, that doesn't stop Jesus from the commission. Watch, watch what he does here. It's not the only place you find this kind of scenario. When we memorize Matthew 28, we typically memorize verses 18 through 20, right? All authority is given uh, in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. You guys have that memorized? A number of us do. Maybe we should memorize the whole thing. Because this is what it says, starting in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, <coughs> but some doubted. Have you ever noticed that? Some doubted. Jesus doesn't chide them. He doesn't demote them. What does he do? He commissions them. It doesn't tell us what they doubted doesn't tell us if they doubted themselves or what they were doubting. Jesus doesn't respond to them by chiding them. He responds with a commission. He commissions them saying, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. You see a similar thing. Turning back to Luke, Peter responds with some hesitation, some doubt. Jesus blesses anyways. He responds with contrition and then he sends him on a commission. You will become fishers <coughs> of men. 
Lastly, part of the same point. Jesus responds to those who are contrite. Jesus responds to those who are contrite over their sin. He doesn't encourage the arrogant or the self-righteous or the self-sufficient. Peter was broken and contrite over his sinfulness. And Jesus responds with fear not. Jesus responds to contrition, not self-confidence. And we experience repentance and contrition when we see both the righteousness of Jesus and the mercy and grace of Jesus. That was expressed, in this case, in a marvelous catch of fish. Excuse me. See, here it's not enough to be convicted of your sin. You must also see Jesus as a sufficient Savior who saves all who come to him in faith. Don't put off coming to Jesus because you think you're too sinful. Did you know we're given the Apostle Paul's account of his conversion so that those who think they are incredibly sinful can be saved, showing that Jesus has patience and will save even the worst of sinners. That's why we have the story of Manasseh in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament. So don't hesitate coming to Jesus because you think that you are too sinful. And I just read this this week, so I have to bring it up. Don't hesitate coming to Jesus because you think you're too old. Have you heard this before? This objection, I'm too old to come to Christ. I I can't serve him anymore. I I have nothing to offer him. The response is, is Jesus doesn't save you whether because you are young or you are old. Jesus saves you because, God saves you because of Christ in Christ alone. Don't put off coming to Jesus because you think you're too old. Don't put put off coming to Jesus because you think you are too sinful. David pleads in Psalm 25 this. This is what David pleads. He says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my sin, for it is great. David pleads in a similar way that Peter does here. He pleads on the basis of the greatness of his sin. And when you respond to God that way, he responds to you with open arms in the providing of you, for you the riches and the abundance of Christ provision of salvation on your behalf. Do not plead for mercy on the basis of your goodness or your worthiness, but plead it on the basis of your great sin and look to Christ for that complete salvation. Jesus saves, he calls, he commissions, he commands, and then he provides you with everything to carry out this great work of catching souls. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just moved by the kindness of Jesus, the patience of Jesus in this text. We are truly inadequate. We are sinful. And yet you call us not to remain or wallow in that sinfulness. In fact, to do so would be dangerous. You call us to respond to you with faith and repentance. Christ, we thank you so much that you are patient with your disciples even with the hesitating, doubting Peter, you bless him and then you call him and commission him. Even with doubting disciples, right after the resurrection, you don't chide them or demote them. You give them the great commission. Would you help us to see your kindness and your holiness, your mercy and your righteousness, that we might truly follow after you, picking up our cross, 
leaving everything to follow after this great and glorious Lord Jesus. We thank you for this word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.